Welcome to this message from the teaching ministry of University Presbyterian Church in Orlando, Florida, under the leadership of Senior Pastor Mike Osborne. Please turn with me to your Bibles to Micah. It's found in the Old Testament. Micah chapter 6. If you do not have a Bible, there are Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. They look like this. It's found on page 923. Micah chapter 6, beginning with verse 1. This is the reading of God's holy and inspired word. It says, Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up. Plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the, people has a, for the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered? Remember your journey from Shidom to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with, a, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I first want to thank you for UPC. I thank you for my family. I thank you for uh, this church. And I believe that the local church is the hope of the world. And I have had the privilege of uh, ministering and serving alongside of, of all of my friends here um, in partnership of the gospel of Jesus and being a part of that hope to the world. I pray that this church will continue to be a light uh, that is shining in a dark world. And may there be hope found not only in you, but in your church as we continue where you left off and as we wait for you. So thank you, Lord, that uh, the gates of hell cannot overcome this church. And I pray for your protection and for your blessing upon it. I also thank you for your word. And may the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing to you. And I thank you, Lord, that the grass withers and the flowers fade. But your word, the word of the Lord, stands forever. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm concerned, and the reason I'm concerned is, in October, October 9th of this year, the front cover of USA Today reports that the, the majority has been lost of the Protestant church. The majority of Americans no longer represent the Protestant church. In fact, in 2007, the Protestant church represented 53% of Americans, and now in 2012, just five years later, we represent 48%. And what's most alarming about this report from USA Today is that the 5% that we have seen increase in statistics is that of a group called the nuns. And no, this is not the women who vow celibacy and dress in all black. This is a group who doesn't affiliate at all with any religion. They are people who don't necessarily care for religion or they may pick and choose bits and pieces of different religions. 
And that group went from 15% all the way to 20% within five years. I'm concerned. And in that percentage of nuns, the group that has grown to 20%, a third of that percentage represents people my age and younger. There's a book called You Lost Me by an author, David Kinneman, and he reports that 59% of people my age and younger who grew up in the church are no longer attending church and have no desire to. I'm concerned about our future. I'm concerned about our present. I'm concerned about the society we are living in. There are people like 21-year-old Rebecca Cardon who says, I prefer to stress the importance of acting with compassion rather than choosing a predetermined system of beliefs. More and more people like Rebecca are holding to this viewpoint. You see, what's amazing is we are in the age of technology. And we can receive any information by the touch of a button. If you think about the Reformation time, they had the invention of the printing press. And there was a lot of good in that progress, right? Because more and more people were able to read the Word of God in their language because of the printing press. So there was great, great things based off of the printing press. There is also wonderful progress based off of technology. And we're seeing it every day in our lives. We're talking to people throughout the country. We're talking to people throughout the world. Unreached people groups are being reached, as Mike just prayed about, because of technology and the forms of it. So that's wonderful. But access to technology can also be a hindrance. I say that because the more and more we are exposed to different worldviews, it's not a bad thing to be exposed to worldviews. In fact, we need to be. We need to learn about different worldviews. But the more we're exposed to it, the more likely we can, be, we can adopt it. And more and more people I'm talking to are adopting those viewpoints. And as a result, they don't want anything to do with the church. I'm concerned. I'm also concerned that many churches today are not preaching the word of God. But instead, they're preaching feel-good messages of how to live your best life now. They're preaching messages that every day is a Friday. And that's not what our people need to hear. They're preaching messages that don't describe God's fullness and all of his attributes. But instead, they're just picking and choosing attributes of God that make it sound good that tailor to people's interests, that help inspire them to live better and to live better lives during that week. I'm concerned people aren't hearing the full truth of the Word of God. I'm also concerned that in our society we're having more takers and makers. And what I mean by that is people are more interested in their own comfort and their own self-fulfillment. It's really concerning me. We see this often in marriage statistics. In his recent book, The Meaning of Marriage, Tim Keller reports that the divorce rate is nearly twice the rate it was in 1960. And he says, mostly because people, if they aren't happy, they leave. He said, in 1970, 89% of all births were to married parents, but today only 60% are. Overall, I believe we're living in serious times and more and more people are growing weary of the Lord. They're bored. They're, they're bored of him. And as I began studying this book of Micah, I saw many similarities of Micah and our present day today in America. 
And that is, there's really nothing new under the sun. The people in Micah's day were experiencing things that we're experiencing. For example, in chapter 2, the people had a faulty view of who God was. In chapter 3, the leaders, the priests, did not carry out the word of God accordingly and effectively. For example, in Micah 2, the prophets refused to preach that God would judge their wicked behavior. All they said was, God would come, but he wouldn't take, take them away from their land because he's a loving God who shows compassion. Now, God is a loving God who shows compassion. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But as I said earlier, God has many attributes. He's also a just God who must punish sin. And if all you preach is God's love and mercy, then you won't get the full message. And that's what's happening not only in many of our churches today, but in the day of Micah's time. You see, once you begin to accept a false view of God, you begin to tailor a message that you want to hear, a message that makes you feel good. The people of Micah's day were concerned about their own comfort, about their own desires, their self-fulfillment. That was in chapter 2 and also chapter 3, you can see that. Ultimately, because of all these things, in chapter 7, we see in Micah that there is a breakdown in the social structures where neighbors, friends, even your own family members couldn't be trusted. There is a breakdown in the social structures. You see, overall, the people were growing tired and weary of the Lord. They were looking elsewhere. Overall, they were ungrateful to Him. I'm concerned for our society. And just like in Micah's day, we're experiencing and seeing many similarities. But I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. As we, as we face serious times around us, there is hope. And that's where this message comes in. There's hope, first, because we believe in a gracious God who pursues His people. He loves His people. And we see here in this passage that the setting is that of a courtroom. Where God is the judge, Micah is his envoy, the mountains are the witnesses, and the people, his people, are the accused. But two times in these eight verses, verses 3 and verses 5, verse 3 and verse 5, God calls his people, my people. What that says to me is that God is summoning his people to court, He's dragging them to court, but he's doing it in a gentle way. He's doing it in a loving way. If you watch TV shows like Judge Judy and you read stories about the courtroom, it's nasty. There's a lot of back and forth, bickering, bitterness, hatred. God doesn't do it that way. Instead, he's calling his people to court in a loving way. And he says, my people, come back to me. You're missing out. Come back to me. Don't leave. I'm offering you so much. Don't leave. Don't grow weary of me. That's what he's doing. And God, who is sovereign, is bringing his people back. He's saying, come back. I'm in control. Don't look elsewhere. Look to me. I am in complete control. And so, yes, I believe we are in serious times today. But I also believe we have a sovereign God who is in complete control. Complete control. And so that, my friends, should fill us with great hope. 
I'm also hopeful because of the past. Every single one of us in this room has a story. And all of us who believe in Jesus Christ, we have a story of how God transformed and changed our lives from the inside out. We have a story of the past of how God has provided. I'm sure every single one of us can look back at our past and say, yeah, that was definitely God's fingerprints there. Yeah, God definitely orchestrated that moment. I know he was with me at that point. And what God does here is he's saying to his people, okay, look, you're bored of me, but you shouldn't be. Because remember all those miracles I did in the past. Remember how I showed up? And he gives three examples in the Old Testament. The first is in Exodus chapter 1 through 14. And he talks about how his people were redeemed from slavery. He took them away from Pharaoh's grip while they were enslaved and treated horribly. He took them away from that place. And he provided all these plagues and even part of the Red Sea. And he talked about all these miracles. He provided great strong leadership with Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He was telling his people, remember that. And then he goes in and he says, remember that story of Balak and Balaam. Remember that story of how there was a a, a prophet, Balaam, who was consulted by this king, Balak. Balak, this is found in Numbers 22 through 24. Balak was the king of Moab. And he was concerned that God's people, the Israelites, would come and take over their land and defeat him. And so what he did was he asked the prophet Balaam to put a spell to curse God's people. And he offered Balaam a lot of money. So Balaam, on his way to see Balak, was stopped by his own donkey. And the donkey ended up speaking to Balaam. God used the mouth of a donkey to wake Balaam up. Balaam woke up, and God said through an angel after he spoke through a donkey, I don't want you to put a curse on my people, but instead, I want you to bless my people. And as a result... God provided again for his people, and his people were blessed, they weren't cursed, and the people of Moab were defeated. The third reminder that God gives in this passage is that of the crossing of the Jordan into the promised land, and this is found in Joshua chapter 3 and 4. And just like the parting of the Red Sea, very similar, God has his priest leading his people into the promised land, and right when they step into the water of the Jordan River, it wells up. And it's dry land, and the people walk on dry land and cross the river safely. And as the priests step out on the other side, water flows back. Three examples, three incredible examples of the Old Testament. I encourage you to look at this week. But God is saying, remember the works of my hands. Remember how marvelous this was. And it's because I love you. It's because I'm pursuing you and I am in control. So I'm hopeful because we have a sovereign God. I'm hopeful because of our past. I'm hopeful because we have a Savior to come. And two times in the book of Micah, one in chapter 2, it mentions Jesus as a shepherd who gathers his people. And then in chapter 5, it talks about him as a ruler who rules and reigns over his people. And he does that with full authority. And they're talking about a Savior who is to come. Well, we have the privilege of reading our Bible and learning about the Savior who lived for 33 years. We get to read about all the miracles that he did, about how he constantly showed love and affection, how he was generous, 
how he was sincere, authentic, how he was firm, but yet loving. We have the privilege of learning about Jesus Christ. We also have the privilege of knowing he will return and he can come very soon. I believe he he can come any moment. We need to live that way. So we have a hope that a savior will come again and make all things new. He will restore that which has been broken. So yes, I'm concerned about our society, but I'm hopeful because we have the King of Kings and Lord of Lords on our side. We have Jesus Christ. The fourth thing I am hopeful about is you, the church. As I prayed earlier, I believe that the local church is the hope of the world. I will never forget the times I've shared with you. I will never forget hearing stories about how life groups gathered around their own who were in distress. I will never forget the weddings I performed, participated in, even observed and celebrated that critical point in your life of celebration. I'll never forget the baptisms. I'll never forget the memorial services we had. I'll never forget the Thanksgiving services where I got to hear stories after stories of how God has provided for you over the years. I'll never forget the conversations I've had with you and seeing the growth in you, how the Holy Spirit is at work and alive in your lives. I'll never forget you. And I believe that the local church is the hope of the world, that God uses this church and the local church to influence our society around us. It is through discipleship that he does that. And ultimately, it's the Holy Spirit that changes things, changes lives. Bill Hybels in his book, Courageous Leader, says, There is nothing like the local church when it's working right. It comforts the grieving and heals the broken in the context of community. It offers truth to the confused. It provides resources to those in needs and opens its arms to the forgotten, the downtrodden, and the disillusioned. No other organization on earth is like the church. Nothing even comes close. I completely agree with that. Nothing comes close to the church. Yeah, God uses other means to accomplish his will, but he ultimately works through you, the church, to impact the world around us. And he's doing that mightily. He's doing it through you, and I'm grateful for you. I'm concerned, but I'm also hopeful. I'm hopeful because we have a God who's in control and sovereign. I'm hopeful because he's provided for us in our past. I'm hopeful because we have a Savior who has come and will come and make all things new. I'm also hopeful because he uses us, his church, to be the hope of the world. So what do we do with all this information? How do we respond? Well, there's two ways we can respond. One, we can respond with pride. And two, we can respond with humility. And what's interesting about this passage is in verse 6 and 7, after God explains what he did um, in the past, he, he then has a worshiper, one of his own, respond by saying this. He says, Lord, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see, the worshiper really just doesn't understand what God is looking for. He's asking God, okay, well, if I just offer more sacrifices or if I give more, will that make things right? Will I make you happy? Will you change your mind? Will you love me more? 
Will I be right with you if I just do these things? The worshiper doesn't understand that it's not about what he does. It's about who's to come, Jesus. But the worshiper just doesn't get it. And so he just keeps asking the Lord, what, what, what shall I do? What can I do to earn my way to heaven? What can I do to earn your happiness? And what can I do to earn your love? But he doesn't understand. And so what God is looking for, he's not looking for sacrifices or gifts, but instead he desired the worshiper, his people, he desires us to look to him for our all in all. To look to him for our entire life and say, Lord, I give you my life. And I trust you. And I know you're in control. As I was preparing for this message and reading through the book of Micah, it's easy for me to, to look at society and say, wow, our society is really struggling. We're, we're, going, we're going south pretty quickly. But yet, I wasn't really looking at my heart. And it's easy. Leo Tolstoy says, everybody thinks of changing humanity and nobody thinks of changing himself. And that's so true because I started thinking, okay, how do we impact society? How do we make a difference? How do we go out there and influence our culture because it's struggling right now? How can we, how can we change things and be the local church? And, and then I realized, well, it all starts with me. It all starts inside because we're the problem. And these people that God was talking to were ungrateful. They were growing weary of God and they just were ungrateful. They didn't thank him for anything. And guess what I did? The past three weeks has been nothing but good because I've received phone calls from you, emails. I've met with many of you one-on-one. You've been so encouraging, so loving. It's been overwhelming, but amazing. Stephanie and I are grateful for that. But a week and a half ago, we, we got a buyer for our house. And, or it was Saturday, so yeah, a week ago. Saturday, the inspector came and told Stephanie and I, the house is a little over, townhome is a little over two years old. And he said, I would give you an A rating. Well done. Good job. So we were all excited and proud of ourselves and all that. Well, I kid you not, right after he left, Stephanie took a shower and there was a huge leak from our upstairs bathroom to our kitchen floor and the ceiling. And I thought, what in the world happened? So I called the inspector. I said, what did you do? <laughs> and he said, I don't, all I did was turn on the water. But what had happened was I cleaned it that morning and I, I chipped a little piece, a little ring, and it ended up causing a, a big, big problem. So we, we hired a plumber on Christmas Eve and he came out and fixed it. We also had a guy this past weekend fix our carpet. And then we drove to Knoxville this past week to find a place to live because that's important. So we go and we find a place to live. And on our way up there, about seven hours into the drive, it's a 10-hour drive, there's a road sign on the highway, and the car in front of me quickly dodged it, and then right, right as I came up to it, I didn't have time, because as I was trying to dodge it, there was a car right next to me, so I ran right over it. It busted my radiator. So we were in tires plus for four hours, four days ago. <laughs> we made the most of it. But the whole time, I was just really fighting with the Lord in, inside, and I was I was resonating with these people because I was ungrateful. And I started wondering, God, what are you doing here? I don't get it. I feel like you're calling me here, but all this stuff's happening. What's going on? But here, throughout all this, you've been praying for me. You've been loving us. We weren't even expecting a love offering. You know, but it's just amazing how God has responded with kindness. But yet, 
Here I was ungrateful. And I think we all do that. And so instead of always looking out in our culture, it's important to identify the problems, as I mentioned earlier. But we really have to start here first. And as we begin to repent of our own wickedness and our own idols, that's where the real change happens. We have to be changed inside out. And the Holy Spirit has to wake us up and revive us. And then we move forward. So as we work on our own hearts, God tells us to respond with humility. There's a a saying I said one time to you, and I'll never forget it. I, I heard it somewhere. But it said, humility is like underwear. You must wear it, but you can't let it show. And I thought, okay, that's, that's catchy. But really, that's true, right? I mean, you've you got to have humility. You just don't try to show it. And that's what God is calling us to do and how we are to respond to him. And the way we do that is called the Micah Mandate. He says three things. To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So let's look at those three things briefly. What does do, doing justice mean? Well, it means to give people what they are due, whether punishment, protection, or care. It means to treat people fairly. It means to respect them. It means to work with integrity. It means to treat people equally, to put them above yourself. So when we say God is a just God, he's a just God because he must punish sin. He's not being unfair He's being completely fair. That's what doing justice means. But it also means to provide people protection and care. So we are to look after widows and orphans and those who are in need. That's what doing justice is all about. It's also linked with righteousness, the word righteousness. Righteousness means being right with God and therefore being committed to putting right all other relationships in life. So justice and righteousness go hand in hand. Doing justice includes not only the righting of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially toward the poor and vulnerable. The people in Micah's day were treating the poor horribly. They weren't respecting them. They were, they were taking advantage of them. We aren't, we aren't to do that. We are to treat them with respect and love and care for them. So God first tells us to respond by treating people justly. He then says to love mercy. And what does that mean? Love mercy means goodness, kindness, loyal deeds, faithfulness, unfailing love. Where justice is pretty cut and dried, mercy is personal and it's compassionate. John Ortberg says, acceptance is an act of the heart. To accept someone is to affirm to them that you think it's a very good thing they are alive. I love that quote because accepting someone is really showing them mercy. To show them that you are grateful they're here, that they're alive. And you go above and beyond by showing them love and compassion. So as you're treating people fairly, you're doing it out of love and out of compassion. It's really the attitude behind the action. Zechariah 7 says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. As justice puts the emphasis on action, mercy puts the emphasis on the attitude or motive behind the action. So God tells us to do justly, to love mercy, but he also says to walk humbly with your God. The Hebrew word humble is sauna, which means to be modest, careful, or prudent. Humility should be an expression of our faith. 
A month ago, I was reading through the book of Proverbs, and there was one word that continued to stand out to me, and that was the word prudent. And prudent means to be wise or judicious in practical affairs, to use discretion. Look with me on the screen with some of the passages in Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 16, a fool shows his annoyance at once, but a prudent man overlooks an insult. Proverbs 12, 23, a prudent man keeps his knowledge to himself, but the heart of fools blurts out folly. Proverbs 14, 15, a simple man believes anything, but a prudent man gives thoughts to his his steps. In other words, don't believe everything you hear. Challenge it with scripture. Proverbs 15, 5, a fool spurns his father's discipline, but whoever heeds correction shows prudence. It's practical affairs on your daily life. That's what prudence is, and that's what God is calling us to do. He's calling us to live lives of prudence, to be slow to speak, quick to listen, and slow to become angry. That's exactly what God is challenging us and calling us to do. In 1917, before World War I, before the American troops were to go into Belgium and France, the New York Bible Society asked President Teddy Roosevelt to inscribe a message in every single one of the troops' New Testament Bibles. Because at that day, believe it or not, every single soldier, soldier was given a New Testament Bible. And so President Roosevelt, as he thought about it, he said, what, what could I inscribe in these Bibles? And the first thing that came to mind was the Micah Mandate. He said, the whole teaching of the New Testament is actually foreshadowed in Micah's verse. And then he says this, do justice and therefore fight valiantly against those that stand for the reign of Moloch and Beelzebub on this earth. Love mercy, treat your enemies well, succor the afflicted, treat every woman as if she were your sister, care for your little children, and be tender with the old and helpless. Walk humbly. You will do so if you study the life and teachings of the Savior walking in his steps. That was from President Teddy Roosevelt, 1917. Along with Roosevelt, there, were, there have been six other presidents who have opened up the Bible on Micah 6 and have sworn on this verse as they were inaugurated into office. There are also three buildings in our nation's capital that have this message inscribed in the front of their buildings. This is a powerful, powerful mandate, a powerful call of discipleship. Throughout all the prophetic books, there were two themes that emerged. One was that of judgment and the other was that of hope. God was telling his people, if you continue to disobey me, If you continue to look to other gods besides me, then I will have to discipline you. I don't want to, but I'm going to have to. But he said, even despite all that, even despite your disobedience and wickedness, I will pour out my grace and I will restore you to your land and I will bring you and give you a savior who will make all things new. That's the message of hope that he gave. And that's the message he's giving us today. Yes, there is a lot going on outside of these walls, even inside of these walls. But God is saying, I'm here. I love you. I want what's best for you. And sometimes it's going to be hard. I might discipline you a little bit, but I'm doing it because I love you. Ultimately, I want you back to me. I'm not bored. I'm not, you know, you shouldn't be bored of me. But instead, you should love me. So come back. That's what he's calling us. So as we wait for Jesus to come back and make all things new, he's calling us to be the church, 
to do the things where he left off until he comes back. He's calling all of us to fulfill the Micah mandate as best as we can to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, how it is powerful, sharper than any double-edged sword. We thank you that it pierces our soul, it pierces our heart. And uh, I just pray that we will look at this passage and be challenged by it. It's easy for us to respond like the worshiper did, to look at you and say, well, God, if I just give a little bit more, if I just give my time or my money, then, then I'll make all things right. But it doesn't work that way. Instead, you, you really desire and you ask for our all. And so I pray that we will give you our all, that we'll literally surrender our lives to you and trust, Holy Spirit, that you're with us and that you're alive and active. We thank you, Jesus, that you are always with us despite serious times. We pray for our country. We pray for our world that uh, we will be a people of repentance and that we will be a people of faith because ultimately what will change this society is more and more disciples who have been trained in the faith and who then multiply and extend this message out to others so that their lives can be changed as well. So God, be glorified in our lives. And I thank you for this church. In Jesus' name, amen. We at University Presbyterian Church thank you for listening to this message. Our mission is to help people know God, grow together, and serve others. To learn more about the church or how to have a vital relationship with God, visit our website at www.upc-orlando.com or call our offices at 407-384-3300.